Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so glad you are here today, and I'm especially excited because I have a guest on the show today. Tanya Phillips is a mom, a wife, a total fashionista. She is literally magazine gorgeous and a working model a working midlife model. How amazing is that? But Tanya's experience and what she's going to share with you today might be surprising and she gets really vulnerable. And so I'm so grateful that she's here and I am going to let her story unfold from her, not from me. So welcome to Caesar Midlife, Tanya. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to have you. Okay, so as you know, my first question on the podcast is always, how old are you? Well, I am 44 for another, um, what, month and a half, and then I'll turn 45. All right, take the 44, girl. Take it. (laughs) Okay, and what? I was going to say, I'm 44 years young. Absolutely. It's all about your spirit and your attitude. Okay. So tell me, where are you right now? Uh, Currently, we live in Taylorsville, Kentucky. Um, If you couldn't tell by the accent, I live in Kentucky. (laughs) I I try not to have the Southern accent, but (laughs) yeah. You have a darling accent. (laughs) I love it. It's super cute. And One of the things that you told me is that you've spent your whole life in Kentucky. You know, you grew up in the Louisville area, and you'll have to apologize for my Midwestern accent and probably butchering of Louisville. But one of the things that you told me that was super surprising for me and unique was that you were the first person in your family to graduate from high school. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that is correct. Um, Out of my immediate family, um, I am the first one to graduate high school. Both, uh, I I believe my brother and my mom did go back and get their GEDs later. But yeah, I was the first one to graduate high school. So I felt like that was a great accomplishment. (laughs) Yes, that's amazing. It's good when you can like set the tone for, you know, your life and your family's life thereafter. So that's Awesome. And you told me a little bit about that time when you were graduating from high school that you had been accepted into college and you were really excited because you had the dream of studying law, but your mom didn't want you to go. Was that surprising for you? You know, I don't think it was a total, total shock. 
because like my parents were divorced and they had been divorced for several years. And so I was the only uh, child at home. And so it was just me and my mom for years together. And I, I am the baby of the family. So I think, you know, she didn't want me to go away because she was afraid. The college that I wanted to go to was EKU, which is Eastern Kentucky University. And they're pretty well known for being a party school. Um, so she was afraid that, you know, I was going to turn into a partier. But I, I wasn't, like I said, totally shocked. But it was a big blow because, you know, to graduate high school and to really want to pursue to go to college and then to get into the school. Because I'll be honest, I wasn't like the best student. <laughs> I was a uh, more social but, uh, however, I did, you know, get a high enough score to get in uh, with my ACT score. So I was really excited about going away and building a, a new, you know, life. And, yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah. And it sounds like that was kind of a pivotal moment for you because then you kind of set out on this journey of really trying to to find yourself, to find your path, to find the job for you, the right career, you know, that it it kind of started that whole journey for you because your dream wasn't going to happen the way that you had initially planned. So you decide to try beauty school. And it sounds like at this point you meet your then boyfriend, now husband, Brian. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And you know, you're in beauty school and you're like, gosh, okay, this is going to take a long time. I think I want to opt for a shorter track. So you decide to go down the path of becoming a nail tech, which was a lot quicker. And you kind of get down this journey of, you know, continuing to figure out your career and your job and all of these things. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, when I wasn't able to go to EKU, I was kind of grasping at straws thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? And then after I met my husband, before we were married, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I have to get my life together. You know, this is what you do. You, you establish some sort of career and, you know, settle down. <laughs> and so, uh, but the problem was, is that, you know, when I went to beauty school, I just, I love hair and I love nails and I love fashion, but um, I wasn't focused, you know, so I, I quit going to beauty school for hair, but then decided to go back to do the nails because it was a quicker course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at that time, I was just like, oh, you know, let's just let me figure something out and hurry up and get it going because, you know, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. And yeah, so it kind of, like I said, I've kind of done a lot of different things in my life as far as jobs go. So, uh, you know, like I said, I don't know why I chose to do the nails. I think like I, it was just because it was a quicker course. And I think that I, I say a blow to me of not being able to go to college kind of sent me on a spiral as, as like tr trying to figure out like, who am I in a quick manner, I guess. Yeah, and I can I can very much relate to that because I've started a lot of different things. I think people on the podcast have heard me talk about before how I went to six colleges. You know, <laughs> it, there are some people I think who are kind of always like open to what's the next thing? What am I going to do next? So I think we are kindred souls in that department. So I totally yeah. understand that. <laughs> well, I'm so such a multi passionate 
person too, that there's so many things that I love. And I'll be honest, it's definitely was so hard and still is a little bit um, on trying to like pinpoint exactly like what I really want to do (laughs) in life. You know, it's like, because I love so many things, you know, it's, it's so hard, but I think that's what makes us who we are is like, you may love, you know, hair and you may love nails, but it may not be something that you want to do all day, every day. Yeah. And I love that now there's the term multi-passionate. I feel like when um, I was going to six colleges and you were like trying beauty school and nail school and all these different things that that word wasn't there. It was kind of like, oh, you know, she's all over the place, can't make a decision. Mm -hmm. But I think multi-passionate is such a positive way of being like, you know what? I like a lot of things. I'm interested in a lot of things. And I think kind of helps you reframe going, what am I going to do for the rest of my life to what am I going to do next? What's my next yes. thing? And it takes that pressure off of like, oh my gosh, my whole life is depending on this next step or this mm-hmm. next decision. Totally, totally. And, and you know, it's so frowned upon being in Kentucky, what we called fickled, you know, you're fickled, <laughs> like you just don't know what you want to do. You're just all over the place. And it's so frowned upon, but it's really, you know, when you're allowed to be multi-passionate and, and try things, I think it just makes you an all around better person and, and you feel more complete because you're able to do these things and then realize, okay, well that maybe not (laughs) what I want to continue to do, but I did it. Yeah. I love that. And I do think, you know, if you are somebody that's multi-passionate or like you said, you know, using the word fickle, you are trying lots of things. So I feel like you get to the end of your life and you don't really say, what about this? Or what about that? Because you probably tried it. (laughs) So I I love that. I actually think that's the positive spin on being, you know, somebody that likes change and likes to try different things. So, okay, getting back to kind of your journey and your story, you know, you end up basically moving from your mom and stepdad's house in with your boyfriend, but you really do take your time getting married, which is interesting and also impressive that you knew to take the time because you were so young when you went to beauty school. You were like 18, right out of high school. But you get married in 2004. And then in 2007, you're blessed with a son. Is that right? Yes, that's right. My my one and only. I have one son, one child. He is my one and only. He is my world. <laughs> Aww, I love that. And his name is Braxton? Yes, Braxton. Cute. Okay. And it sounds like when you had Braxton, you and your mom were running a cleaning business together. And you decide, you know what? I am going to focus on my son. I'm going to become a full-time mom. So talk about what being a mom looked like for you at that time. Mm. Yes, I will say that that is one of the jobs that I continually look back on and love so much. Um, Even though he's 15 now and he's a teenager, (laughs) I may question it a little bit now (laughs) because I'm like, oh, goodness. But, um, you know, that time in my life was such a blessing, you know, to be able to stay home and to just, I don't know, to be able to teach him new things and to see all the firsts. It was such a special time, special time. But in the same sense, 
it was a time where I kind of lost myself in a way. I was just so focused, you know, on putting all my energy into him. So I kind of just disappeared a little bit in the background. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there are a lot of moms listening that can relate to that sentiment, to that feeling, you know, especially when their kids were super young. But even now, you know, as our kids are becoming teenagers of going, okay, because I lost a lot of my identity along the way, now here I am at this place of going, now who am I and what am I going to do and all of those things. And I know there are a lot of moms that that resonates with. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. Okay. So, you know, it sounded like to me that you were, you know, you were all in, in the mom thing. You were, you know, the team mom. You were on the PTO. You were like so present. You were doing all the things. And at the same time, your dad goes in for an epilepsy surgery that doesn't go well. And so you end up being not only, you know, caregiving for your son full-time, you're also your dad's primary caregiver? Yes. Yes. So my dad had epilepsy. He found out at age 40 um, that he had epilepsy. He didn't have any, you know, symptoms or issues prior. I mean, there have been some things that we realize now. Uh, But anyways, yeah, they found out that he had epilepsy and um, there was this surgery that he wanted to try because, you know, he loved to drag race and he was a drag racer and he could not drive. You know, he lost the ability to work, to drive before his surgery because, you know, you can't drive if you have seizures. And he had a lot of seizures. So he really wanted to try the surgery out to hopefully help get his license back and be able to do the things that he loved. But unfortunately, that did not happen. Um, It did, however, stop the seizures. But he lost a lot of short term memory. He lost the ability to swallow. Yeah, it's, it was so tough. Um, You know, my son was very young. Uh, I was also, you know, a a wife. So, you know, trying to take care of my husband, my son, and now my dad was a lot of responsibility. And it it was definitely, you know, one of the hardest times in my life. Oh my gosh, it sounds so, so hard. And I know you talked about, you know, how your parents had divorced when you were a preteen and that your dad was kind of a challenging person. And so I imagine that made this time even the more hard for you. Yes. Yeah. My dad and I um, had a rocky relationship. I mean, I'll be 100% transparent that my parents got divorced because my dad had uh, cheated on my mother and uh, they were married for 21 years. So that was a very long time. And, you know, when that happened, it was such a hard time for me. I was a, a young, uh, early teen. And, you know, for that to happen and my dad was dating someone that was younger, it was it was definitely difficult, you know, and to, you, you know, your whole life flips upside down. And, what happened was my dad ended up, you know, that my parents got divorced. My mom moved on. My dad stayed with this person for a while, but then she left him for someone else and he was miserable. And then he found out that he had epilepsy. So he was even more miserable as a person. So he had a lot of mental issues. So, you know, he just had so much animosity towards women, 
you know, because he lost, you know, 21 years of his life, uh, his married life to to this person who he thought he was going to be with for the rest of his life. And then she left him for someone else. And it was just a, a really bad time. But anyway, with our relationship, you know, it made it difficult because he would say derogatory things about women. And he was just he was so miserable as a person. And now I, I see that now, you know, but at that time, it was so hard. And then, you know, going through what he went through, I felt terrible for him, you know, because he didn't, you know, deserve to have the surgery not work. But he just had this terrible outlook on life, um, which I, I mean, you know, in that position, I would probably almost, I don't know if I would be the same, but it, it would definitely be something that it would be difficult for me to go through as well. Right. I think, you know, sometimes a relationship with a parent can be so challenging and so layered because like you said, you loved your dad. You, you know, you could empathize with him. Your heart broke for him, but also he wasn't treating you well. And, you know, that's, that's hard and it does make for complicated feelings. And, you know, you're, you're trying to balance so many things and, you know, like you said, feel like you're losing your identity. But the one thing you were really hyper-focused on was your health. And you told me about how you were trying to just eat super healthy, how you were teaching classes like spin and boot camp and all of these things, but you were not feeling healthy. You were actually feeling so sick that sometimes you had a hard time getting out of bed. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on? Yeah. So one of the many jobs that I had was uh, in the fitness industry as well. So I worked in the fitness uh, industry, uh, teaching, you know, spin and boot camp classes during that time. And that was like my way of getting out of my head and, and out of all these things that I was going through as a mom, you know, and, and taking care of my dad. And, you know, I was taking care of everyone else and really trying to take care of myself by you know, trying to live a healthier lifestyle and working out and teaching these classes. And, but I, I was eating so healthy that I, I had started eating a lot more wheat. Let's just say that, you know, when you hear about health, you want to eat whole grains, multigrain, um, and wheat is better than white bread and all that. So I had increased the intake of all the, all of these things. And I kept feeling, sick. And I had experienced stomach issues throughout my whole life. I will say that too, where I would have like upset stomach or diarrhea. I went through my whole probably early or late teen years, early twenties with stomach problems. But I just, I I got to this point where I was uh, mentally and physically just worn out and I would go to these workout classes and I just felt like I couldn't physically do what I thought I should be able to do. And I was doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing, I thought. And I just remember one day waking up and I just literally could not get out of the bed. And I told Brian, I said, my husband, I said, there's something is wrong with me. Like, I don't know what it is, but something is wrong. Oh my gosh. And so then you kind of then go like trying to seek help and getting to a diagnosis and some answers and some help, it sounds like was really challenging. You know, you talked about like even needing a biopsy. So like what were some of the things that went on as you were going to the doctors going, something's not right here? 
Yeah, so I would go through spurts, you know, where uh, that time when I couldn't get out of bed, you know, we thought, well, maybe it's depression, you know, maybe it's something, you know, I'm like, no, it's physically, you know, physically something. And I would get on a WebMD and try to (laughs) self-diagnose and, you know, and I would go to my regular physician and and they ran, you know, some blood work and they said, well, you know, your levels are off here. Um, And I had developed a thyroid condition prior, uh, after I had my son within the first year, I did end up with an autoimmune condition, which was a thyroid condition and I was being treated. But I thought that that was just hereditary because my mom you know, has a thyroid problem as well and takes medication. So they kind of just pushed that as that was it. And so I would just have these spurts of energy and no energy and energy and no energy and all these stomach issues. Like I said, uh, not to be TMI, but explosive diarrhea. I mean, you know, to where (laughs) I wouldn't, you know, go, I would be so afraid to go out to eat because if I did, I might have to go to the bathroom and it's, it's so embarrassing when you have right. to go to the restroom in a public place, especially when you have explosive diarrhea. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Me, it's funny. Yeah. When you're literally like squeezing your butt cheeks together and sweating to death <laughs> and you're like, can I make it? You know, this line is going, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know, uh, oh. uh, some funny, funny stories, but my friends can tell you that, you know, there has been some close calls, um, but luckily, yeah. Anyways, I was seeing different doctors and I, when the blood test came back, the, uh, my, I want to say my white blood cell count was low and some, something else. So they thought that it could be, um, leukemia because of my symptoms. And so I had to have a bone marrow biopsy done and, um, yeah, luckily that came back. Okay. And they were like, I don't, we don't, really know what it is. So we went to Cleveland Clinic and they did some testing and I had to wait for those tests. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to an allergy and immunology doctor to see, you know, to get to the depth of my immune system because I was battling sicknesses as well. Like I would get sinus infections and rashes and let's see, headaches. And I mean, so there's just so many different um, symptoms that went along with what I was experiencing, but we couldn't pinpoint exactly where it was coming from. So um, finally, I went to him uh, before I had gotten my results from Cleveland Clinic. And immediately when I, you know, when he walked in, he said, I can tell you right now, you have celiac disease and without with just looking at you. And I kind of sat back and I said, well, you know, it's weird is because I had been looking, <laughs> trying to self-diagnose uh, by looking up online, but I kind of thought the symptoms sound sounded similar to that. And yeah, he's like, we're going to do this one blood test. I mean, that was it, a blood test, one simple blood test that checks all of the, all of the things for celiac disease. Um, and yeah, he, the test came back positive. And <laughs> yeah, Tanya, I just think, you know, hearing your story, I have talk to so many women that have been on a journey like yours where they knew something is not right, something is wrong, and yet the doctors keep kind of pushing them off. Like, oh, like when you said, you know, maybe it's depression, that that is almost always the first thing. And I just feel so irate on your behalf and on the other women I've talked to behalf that 
that that is how a doctor would dismiss problems that are so bad for you that you're like not wanting to go out to eat because you're so scared. Like that that is a legitimate problem. That is not depression. And, you know, then you got that IBS diagnosis and then – and you mm-hmm. were the one having to say, no, like I need an answer. Yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I didn't I, – I know I had told you previously in our conversation, but I didn't say it here that, you know, I, when I would go in, they would – they would say, you know, you have irritable bowel syndrome. We'll give you this medication. I remember going back to a physician um, because my blood pressure was really low as well. And they said, oh, well, here, you know, your blood pressure is low. We'll just give you this medicine. And I'm like, no, no. I'm like, I'm not taking any medication. I My blood pressure is going to be fine once I get myself better. You know, I'm not going to take medication because you think that I should just take a medication without, you know, um, having any issues prior to this in my life. So, you know, that's one thing I will say is my faith in some of the medical side of things is, you know, is so tough because we as people know how we feel, but sometimes they're so busy that it's so hard for them to really focus on just one patient. So I, I feel for their community as well. But um, it's just so tough, you know, and and I knew I wanted to fight and keep fighting because I knew there was something wrong and I wasn't getting the answers and I wasn't going to stop until I did. Right. And and that you're like, I'm not going to take the Band-Aid of, you know, the medication for blood pressure because I want to find out what the root of the problem is. And so I'm so glad that you kept digging and fighting for the answers and so it sounds like, you know, celiac is a, is a hard diagnosis, but that at first you said you kind of felt excited to finally get an answer. Oh my gosh, yes, because I thought, okay, now I know what it is. Now I know what I need to avoid. You know, it sounds simple. I was going to say simple, but then I, I was like, oh, I don't want to say that. Um, <laughs> because celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where, you know, I, when I go to a restaurant or something, I'll say, oh, I have an allergy, you know, this is why, but it's really not an allergy. It's actually an autoimmune disease. And so, you know, what it does is, um, you have finger like in your stomach, you have these finger, like it's called villi and that absorbs all the nutrients. Uh, so it, you know, distributes it through your body out of the food that you eat. Well, when you have celiac disease and over time, they, they fall flat. So there's no way to absorb nutrients <laughs> in the food. So, um, you know, it also can lead to cancer and other autoimmune problems if you do not follow the diet. And there's no medication. They are currently in uh, the works of trials of trying certain medications to see if this would be helpful. But really, there's no Band-Aid to put on it other than you have to avoid wheat, rye, barley, and gluten, which Mm -hmm. is almost in everything. It is a tough diet. I will not lie. But um, at first I was so excited. I was like, yes, I'm going to feel better. And so I was like, you know, I feel I can see myself like running with my arms open, like, yay, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, it was finally a diagnosis and I knew what I needed to do and I started doing it and it was starting to feel better. And I was getting somewhat of my life back. Um, but then reality started to come back, you know, like your life is coming back. You're being, you know, you're able to go and you're able to do, and you're able to move again and feel good. But 
then you kind of get into social situations where it's totally different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important that you gave kind of that rundown of celiac and explaining it's a disease. You know, we have a friend whose daughter had celiac and they actually were able to figure it out as a baby because she had complete failure to thrive. And, you know, I think now what's interesting in this day and age when a lot of people who don't have celiac go gluten-free and, you know, there's a lot of people that have gluten sensitivity, Mm -hmm. but that there is such a distinction between celiac and your body's response to gluten that is so serious. One of my friends that's from the neighborhood, um, you know, if there's just the tiniest, tiniest trace of gluten, she will be sick for days. Yes. days. And so I think, you know, even going to a restaurant and being like, oh, I don't eat gluten. They're like, eh, okay, you know, you're trendy. You don't eat gluten. Like yeah, they don't understand like, oh my gosh, no, no, no. Like it's poison to my body. My body. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That is something that I wanted to say too, is that it's not a fad diet. And a lot of people think that, you know, mm-hmm. one of my best friends works for a restaurant and, you know, I would eat there, you know, periodically because they have a gluten-free menu. And then she told me, she said, don't eat it again. I know my menu says gluten-free, but do not eat it because it is not gluten-free. And that is very scary. And it's very scary and very common because I'll tell you, they're not educated. You know, the restaurant industry is not educated. The workers aren't educated about how one little trace or two little um, parts per million can really affect someone with celiac disease or a sensitivity. So it's it's not just this, you know, fad diet. And, you know, you see it on TV and you hear it in the movies, you know, people will say, oh, I'm gluten free. You know, you they make a joke about it or they'll joke on it, you know, but it's it, and it is funny in some ways, but it's it's truly not when it's someone's life, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you talked about how you're vegetarian. And so for you, like a lot of your diet was gluten. It was like the whole wheat pastas and the whole wheat breads and all of those things. And, you know, even though you were running with your arms open being like, yay, I'm so excited that I'm going to feel better, that kind of shifted pretty quickly. And you started to feel pretty paralyzed by this new diet and restriction and lifestyle so talk mm. a little bit about what started to happen with you. Yeah, it was it was like I envisioned myself running with my arms open. And then uh, as I get down to it, then I just hit a brick wall. <laughs> because oh I have a visual yeah. of this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm t- I totally do too. So um, I'm very visual as a person. But I, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was so – I was excited about, you know, getting better. But then – when reality hit that I would never be able to go back to what I was prior, meaning, you know, when I go to social events or family functions, I mean, Christmas, I mean, I could just go on and on, but, you know, going out to eat, you know, it's, it became very difficult because like I said, you know, I would trust in people and then I would go and then, you know, like I said, my best friend would tell me like, don't eat it again because it's not, you know, cause I would experience sickness. Like you talked about your friend. So I just started to feel just awkward because not only was I vegetarian, but I'm also now gluten-free, but then I didn't drink alcohol, you know, and it's not, it's just a choice. Like it wasn't, I had a problem. It was just 
something that I never really acquired the taste for. Uh, my brother, who is seven years older than me, um, was an alcoholic. It runs in our family. And I just seen so much that alcohol can do to a family and a person mm -hmm. that I was just literally, I think, so afraid. And I've tried alcohol before, but it just mm -hmm. wasn't, it just didn't taste good. So I just don't drink. So not only do I not drink, I don't eat gluten and I'm a vegetarian. So when you go to a function, it's really, really hard to fit in, you know, you're, you're like, Oh, what do I eat? You know? And then asking, you know, it's, it's so hard to go to a function and then ask, well, can you tell me what is in this? Like what products did you use? You know, was it in a separate area? Then you bake this cake and just, you know, all of these things. And most people, their kitchens aren't certified, you know, gluten-free. I mean, my own kitchen isn't certified gluten-free. I mean, I have and cook gluten in my kitchen for my, my family, but I don't ingest it. So it became honestly really, really hard. And I recall a time, and I've never shared this publicly, but it was actually my 40th birthday. And it's a quick story. Um, and my friends were throwing me this 40th birthday party and I told them, I said, I don't want a cake. I don't want any of that because I didn't want them to have to eat gluten-free cake. And I honestly don't really like any of the gluten-free <laughs> cakes that I've tried. So, I mean, it's just so different. You know, it's when you go from being able to eat gluten and not gluten, it's a little different. It does taste different. So, but I told them, I, like, I don't want it, you know, don't get it or whatever. And there's a bakery that's certified gluten-free in our, in Kentucky or in Louisville. And um, so they had ordered some cookies, I believe, but they ended up getting a cake and it was very hard. I didn't want to really even look at the cake or have the cake. And I, I, I felt bad. I really felt bad because I know they did it because it was my birthday and they wanted it to like, to be like celebrate a thing. Yeah, yeah. To celebrate it and for them to be able to eat it, you know, but it was so, so hard. Like I've never publicly said this, but it was, so, it was one of the hardest things. I remember crying because they were all there and I was so happy that we were sharing this moment together. But I was also really crying because I was very sad. I was mourning the fact that I was not able to eat that cake. Um, and it was my 40th birthday, you know? So those are the things, you know, that just make me feel socially like awkward. <laughs> yeah. And you said that it really just like deeply impacted you, that you started to just feel kind of isolated and you started pulling back from a lot of social things. And then you really just stopped really eating very much at all. So what happens? Because things like this whole diagnosis, all the things that had seemed so positive at the beginning really just take kind of like a dark turn for you. Yeah. It, you know, like I said, when I started to actually get back out socially, I felt so isolated or just not normal. And I hate to use that word because I don't quote unquote like the word normal, right, um, right. you know, because who is, but, um, I, I felt, you know, just so different, you know, when I would sit at a restaurant and watch everyone else celebrate, um, and just sit there. And, you know, at first, like I said, it didn't really bother me, 
But then it started to get to me because it made me feel like, okay, there's something wrong with me. I also, when I was diagnosed with the celiac disease, when I was um, went to that autoimmune doctor, I had other food allergies. So I had to remove a lot of food from my diet. But like I said, at that time, I wasn't, I didn't care. I wanted to feel better. So that's what I had done. So then I slowly kind of started to reintroduce foods back, but it, it had to be one at a time and it had to be like a month long, you know? So it, there were so many things on that list. I mean, rice, blueberries, apples. I mean, there were so many things. So I, would just one at a time, one at a time. And like I said, I just started feeling like socially awkward. I think the pressure of being, you know, a caregiver for multiple people in my life, perfectionism has been a struggle for me throughout my life too. So I wanted to strive to be perfect. And this was another way of kind of like feeling like I was doing something. I don't know. It just took me down this really dark path of just being really mad, mad at food, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I was just so mad that I couldn't be normal and be able to eat and, you know, taking my son to, you know, even the like McDonald's for a, you know, it's not the healthiest, but it was something that, you know, he could play kids in the like, little play. Kids, yeah, yeah, kids love and they want to go to and play in the play place and whatever. And, you know, just to like smell the smells and remember and to think, and it just started mourning. That was it. Mm -hmm. I was mourning. I was getting so dark and so mad that I just said, if I can't, you know, cause people would say to me like, well, you know, there's so many things now that are gluten-free. You could try, you know, I just seen that this is gluten-free now. And, and like I said, the bread and the pastas, I mean, they've come a long way today from where it was when I first found out but they're not the same. And so, you know, trying to, to have like a biscuit or something is so mm -hmm. different. And I would just be so mad that I couldn't eat it, that I just stopped eating it. If I couldn't have it, then I wasn't going to eat it at all. Right. And you talked about how at first it really wasn't about weight. It wasn't about a number, but slowly it became about that. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just start really dropping weight. So talk a little bit about kind of that turning point and what ends up happening. I think, you know, for me, it was almost like a control thing. You know, it was something that I could control by that number. You know, I had gotten to a place that felt like I was in control. Like, okay, well, if I can't eat it, then I won't. And you know, people would make comments and say, like, are you okay? And I don't know if it was the attention that I was getting from the comments, not about, it wasn't in a good way, it was a bad way. But maybe it was the attention that maybe I was lacking, because I was not getting a lot of attention, because I was focused so much on caregiving for others. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it the weight, the number, it was just a thing to control, you know, I can't really pinpoint exactly because I think it's, there's so many things that play a factor in why it got to that point. I think because I was getting noticed maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt so, I don't want to say unnoticed in my life by the people that I loved and was taking care of. And for someone to notice me, 
even right. if it was in a negative way. Acknowledge yeah, acknowledge. Yeah. There we go. Acknowledge. Yes. Well, and it sounds like, you know, and that makes complete sense, the control, the attention, all of this. And so you end up with really a full-blown eating disorder. And somewhere during this time, your dad also passes away. So what was that like? You had a lot of really heavy things going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I remember when I first went to the doctor and they asked me, do you have an eating disorder? And I would say, no, I don't have an eating disorder. Because at the time I was so sick in my head that I didn't think I had it. I said, no, I have celiac disease. You know, I had to avoid these foods. This is why I am thin, you know. Mm-hmm. But then when my dad got really, really sick and was put into a um, rehabilitation center or like nursing facility, I was having to go in there back and forth. And I remember just, I don't know if you or anyone who's listening has been into a nursing facility, but you see these people that are older and you walk past them and they're sitting in their rooms or they're laying there and you mm-hmm. they're sick and you know, and I just would do, see this daily and I would look at myself in the mirror and just say, oh my gosh, I think there's something wrong with me. Like I see what, I don't want to be morbid, but what death looks like and what's happening to these people. And I look at myself and I see some of those same things and I am not ready to die. So I started to think about like possibly seeking a therapist, like I I might need to talk to somebody, maybe if it's just about my life and my past experiences and things like that. And so while he was in there, I started to talk to a therapist. And then they told me, uh, you know, a psychologist actually said, you know, you have anorexia. And that felt like, like a sentence, you know, like a death sentence, because anorexia is a mental illness and it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And when I read about it and talked to them about it, I was just in complete shock that I was in that position at my age. And (laughs) it was one of the, I say, wake up calls. And in that process, I started to talk to my dad because he was getting to the end of his life. And we, oh, I'm trying not to get emotional. Um, but we had several conversations at that time where I felt like we were making amends for all the times that um, were, you know, kind of like healing that I needed to heal from. And mm-hmm. once he passed, that was probably a weight that had lifted off my shoulders and I was able to then start to heal and, you know, get into my recovery journey. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, that's just like a hard, a lot of things all at once, you know, the celiac that leads to anorexia. And I think you saying and telling everyone like it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness in women, um, I think is such a just, you know, huge mind-blowing statistic. And then you had all these hard things of caregiving and finally this turning point where you 
get into therapy, you really start working on your healing, taking care of yourself. And at that same time, you decide to start a podcast. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I uh, Once I started into therapy and I started getting better, it was time for me to focus again on myself. And, you know, my son wasn't, you know, as young and he didn't really need as much of me. And this was going to be my new baby. You know, I I was calling it like, this is my new baby. This is something that I'm going to do for me. And I really wanted to start the podcast so that I could share, you know, stories of other people. And I call it not so darling, or I called it not so darling, was because um, I wanted them to share those not so darling moments in their life to which pivoted them and to the life they have now. Because a lot of people just see the darling parts of our lives. They see these picture perfect lives that we post on Instagram and they don't see the behind the scenes of the really tough stuff that we go through to get to where we are today. So that was my mission was like, I want to share all these stories from other people. And in that process, I was able to share mine. Yeah. And you talked about how, you know, your your podcast started off as kind of this idea of you're going to do this for yourself. You're going to tell these stories. But it really transformed you from the inside, didn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yes. It was another therapy for me. It was so therapeutic. I think that 50% of the podcast was has and helped me with through my recovery. I mean, just listening to other people talk about their stories. And I mean, I've had a wide range of guests who have talked about so many different things, but I've learned so much from each and every one of them. It was just so beneficial for me. And then it really allowed me to open up and then to actually share my story, which was so scary because I'll be honest with you, my husband, maybe one or two of my closest friends knew and not even really my mom. I told her just a little, but not many people knew that I had anorexia. Um, I was so ashamed of myself to be at my age and to struggle with an eating disorder because I knew that it was, quote unquote, you know, a teen or a young person's disease. You know, people don't really realize that there is women in midlife who are continually struggling every day with eating disorders. And it may not be anorexia, but it's some form of an eating disorder. Absolutely. I think you are spot on and nobody's talking about it. Mm-mm. No, no. I love and can relate to how the podcast was so transformative for you because that's how I feel this podcast has been for me as well. And one of the things that you mentioned to me was how it just created this community for you. And through that community, you start getting involved in modeling. And I know you had done some like, you know, small things in your childhood, but talk about modeling in midlife because that (laughs) 
defies the odds. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I will say that I modeled some when I was younger. Uh, my grandmother, um, she put me through modeling school. Um, and so I did some modeling then. And, you know, like I said, I love style and fashion. However, I'm not really fashionable right now. Luckily, we're not on video. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, uh, I, that is, like I said, another passion of mine. I love to be in front of the camera. I, my parents said I was a huge, they call it a ham. Um, yeah. I loved uh, to record myself, you know, with our old cam camcorder and um, take photos. So it was just right up my alley. And and, you know, in my everyday life, I'm not fixed up. I mean, I'm totally not. And as a mom, you know, I was, in, you know, living in these lounge clothes or T-shirts and running shorts. That's that's my go to. Um, <laughs> it's very comfortable. And so, you know, it was a way for me to express and be different, like a different person. So I put on this outfit and it may look, you know, from the seventies or, you know, it could be a glam or it could be this. And so I could just morph into this person and just like express myself through it. And I, I just, you know, what my, my podcast platform allowed me to do was build my community on my social media and, um, on Instagram. And so then I was like, well, I'm going to share all the other things that I like, like, you know, beauty and fashion and style and home stuff. Cause I also like that too, DIY. So I decided to just start posting stuff like style. And from there, you know, I just had people reach out to me. Hey, do you want to do a shoot? Uh, do you want to model this for us? Do you want to do this? And I said, well, heck yeah, I want to, this is a way to, for me to express myself. And so, because I don't get to wear this stuff every day or I, or I could, I guess, but I don't. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm I'm doing it. I'm pushing forward. I I want to also break down those doors of ageism and say like, wait, hang on a minute. Yeah, we're over forty, so like we can, you know, we're the ones buying your products and your clothing. So I think you should um, give us a little time. Um, and mark, you know, and help market your product by, you know, showing that women over 40 can, you know, look good too. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, when I hear you talk about modeling and when I see your pictures and everything, I just imagine that that was another place for you to heal because you got to put those clothes on and feel good about yourself again, you know, feel confident. And also then it kind of forced you to get out of your house, to be in social situations, to, you know, build that muscle again. And so I just imagine that it was healing on multi-level. And when people go to your Instagram page, they are going to see you look 25, not 44, and you are beautiful and rocking it and killing it and defying the odds. And I love that because I agree with you. I think, you know, our society is turning slowly towards having, you know, people who are different ages or different body sizes or different things like that in front of the camera. And you are part of that movement. And that is so incredible. So kudos to you <laughs> for that. But what's so interesting is, you know, before you and I talked from the outside, looking at your Instagram page, I mean, you are, you look like a model, you look like a magazine cover. But then when I really got to talk to you, 
I realized just, you know, kind of these insecurities that you you have and you really talk to me about how you still are just living with regret and uncertainty. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I think that you know, that's why my Instagram is not so darling Tanya is because you know, people may envision me in one way when they see those photos, they may think of me as this what you say at 25. I'm like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be fabulous. I appreciate it." I mean, <laughs> Now at my age, it's funny is because I always tell my husband, I'm like, if people think I'm like 40 or like 39, I'm good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Good. 25. I don't know. But um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to have a hard time getting out of this room. My head's going to be so big. But um, no, I think, you know, I, I struggle with, you know, insecurities every day. Oh my gosh. Like with who I am now, you know, um, even socially going out places, uh, you know, with my son, you know, he's 15. So I think, oh no, do, you know, do people say anything to him at school? Like, cause you know, I put things out there. And so, you know, I'm wondering like, does it make him feel uncomfortable? So we've had conversations about that. I think we all struggle with some sort of insecurity. I mean, as a model or someone over 40, I mean, yes. Do I look at other women and say, oh my gosh, who are younger and say, oh, I wish, you know, I wish I looked like that or, you know, yeah, you know, we're all guilty of that. But I think that the main thing to focus on is that we are all unique people. And so creatively, you know, no matter what our age or size or, or gender, it's, you know, something that we will always be is just ourselves. Yeah. And something that you said to me that, you know, I really wanted to just point out kind of our conversation was you had said to me, like when we talked last time, how you had this just still kind of regret about not going to college and mm -hmm. that that was kind of an insecurity of yours. And I said to you, and I just want to say to you again and to everyone listening, that I think it's really important to start where you're at. Because as much as we look back in our life and we say like, oh, I wish I would have or I wish I could have or if this had gone differently, we truly cannot go back in time. But we can start right now where we're at. And one of the beauties of midlife is that we're not starting from zero. We're starting from experience. We're starting from wisdom. We're starting from years and years of growing to the place we are now. And so I think, you know, trying to really hold firmly in, you know, your self-esteem and feeling good about yourself and, you know, where you've come in your journey, I think is so important. And I think so important for every single woman listening. And I greatly appreciate you sharing, you know, your story and being so vulnerable because I think we do live in an Instagram culture. We do live in a absolutely perfect, like, you know, curated thing that we're handing to the world. And when you are vulnerable, when you share your insecurities, you invite other women to be real, to do the same. 100%. Um, I, you know, I, I would say I don't have regrets because I wouldn't be here right now talking to you. <laughs> um, so, but uh, uncertainty of what it would have been like if I would have been, you know, if I would have went to college or been a little more educated um, in some form or fashion. But 
I think that, you know, what you said was was key. Yeah. And something, you know, that I also appreciated about you was that you were like, you know, I haven't really figured it all out yet. You know, I'm still figuring out kind of what I want to do next. And I think that more women than not in midlife feel that way. That we're at a stage where we're like, oh gosh, like we've got a lot of life left to live, but we've already lived a lot of life. So like, what's next? What am I going to do next? And so what would you tell the woman listening that can relate to being in midlife and saying, what's next for me? Well, I'm going to quote a song. Oh, um, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, seize the day or die regretting the time you lost. Because I think that, um, you know, seize the day and just realize that our lives are not over. They are just beginning, you know, and yeah, just don't give up on your dreams because I mean, ever since I was probably, I'd say eight years old, I wanted to be in front of the camera. I'll I'll tell you that. Like I said, (laughs) and, and here I am. At 44, going to be 45, and I'm doing it. So, you know, it's I never can look, too late. No, it's never too late. Never. I love that. I love that because, yeah, you are doing it. So tell everyone where they can find you. Um, I know you are really active on Instagram. So tell everyone your Instagram page. Yes, it's not so darling Tanya, and it's D A R L I N, darling. Yes, Tanya. the Southern way of saying it. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they can also listen to old episodes of my podcast, which is the Not So Darling podcast. Um, however, I'm not recording anymore, but they can listen there. Yeah, and you have a lot of great episodes that I'm sure people will want to dive into. I cannot thank you enough for coming on today, Tanya, and for sharing your story and for being so raw and honest. I greatly appreciate it. I'm sure everyone listening will too. Thank you guys so much. And I appreciate you. And I love your podcast. Seriously. It's oh, great. I appreciate that. And I relate so much to everything you said about the way that starting a podcast changes your life. So Thanks again. And thanks to all of you for listening. I am truly humbled that you tune in. And if you can so kindly tell a friend about the podcast or give it a rating or review, I would appreciate it because the more women that find this podcast, the more women will join in on this conversation. And the more women that join us, the greater this conversation will be. So thank you so much and have a beautiful day. And don't forget to seize this very day. Thanks again. Oh.